RDI Insights. Mike Dempsey in conversation with Royal Designers. Hello and welcome to the RDI Insights podcast series, where I will be interviewing major figures in the design industry who have been made RSA Royal Designers for Industry, the highest accolade for a designer in the UK. The award was introduced in 1936 to highlight and honour the work of industrial designers for their sustained creative excellence and benefit to society. Rubbing shoulders with the Wigmore Hall, just north of London's Oxford Street, sits the discreet showroom, studio and headquarters of one of Britain's most respected fashion designers. For over three decades, Margaret Howe has established a highly individual reputation based on quality, attention to detail, and an understated approach to fashion, which has given her a global reputation, a CBE, and Royal Designer for Industry status. But her journey started at a jumble sale back in the early 70s, when she stumbled on a beautifully made vintage shirt. So taken by its well-crafted simplicity, it inspired her to embark on producing her own. The rest is history and a fascinating story. Well, I think I, I should uh, start by um, saying to the listeners that we're sitting in your studio and shop in Wigmore Street, which uh, you opened, I think, five years ago. Yeah. And um, it's extremely discreet and has this lovely mix of your own work along with a lot of 20th century furniture, which I want to talk to you a, a bit about later. But before we, um, we talk about your, what you're doing now, I want to just go back a little bit. Um, you grew up in the 50s. Yes. And I'm interested to know uh, what your view was of that kind of post-war experience and what effect it had on you. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, I, I was... I don't know... Of course, not being aware of it being post-war war, at the time, but I had a very sort of happy, um, simple childhood, I think you'd say, Um um, my parents would always make our clothes. You know, my mother would make the clothes. Um, my father grew the vegetables in the garden. Um, uh, we'd knit our own things, darn socks, all that sort of thing. Mm. Um, very much a sort of um, outdoor life as well. Um, picnics in the country um, and um, walks and and parents used to like to get away from the crowd so mm. um this was where where were you sorry yes that's yes. right yes and um yes i think that sort of there was always a strong sort of love of the countryside mm. and and sort of natural things and colors mm. um which sort of now i realize sort of gets fed back in yeah um and um my early memories are quite strong, sort of tactile memories of my father's sort of 
shirt that he used to garden in um, and an old raincoat hanging in the garage. And again, that sort of fed back in when I was trying to make clothes that um, felt lived in rather than sort of um, rather sort of smart and straight off the hanger. Hmm. So uh, you, you, what you said just a little bit earlier there was that your mother uh, was very much into making making clothes so that was something that was very much passed on to you because I know that as a small girl you were making your own clothes as well is that simply rather like mothers teaching daughters to cook at that time I think you just naturally um, went to the sewing, think, sewing machine I think at that time nearly every house would have its sewing machine yeah whereas now perhaps it wouldn't be the case at all it's true yeah. um and um Yes, she used to make our dresses, uh, you know, little floral dresses and things. And um, but my my middle sister also um, <clears throat> she she would start making her clothes before me, and then she would encourage me and so on. I think the thing of making things was um, we all made things. Well, my my middle sister and I, we were both very similar in that we both um, loved drawing and painting and went to art school. Um, but we'd always be making things, whether it was um, toy theatres or little miniature gardens, um, embroidery, anything. So was it just the t- two of you, or did you have... Um, a third sister. Third who, sister. Yes. And um, were, you, were you all sort of creative, do you think? Or? My eldest sister um, didn't go the art school route. No. No. So you, uh, obviously, uh, as you got a little older and, and you had this... Um, you know, natural creative inclination. You, how did you make that journey from from living in Surrey to deciding that mm. art school would be for you? Because for some, it, it, that journey was kind of complicated, and for others, very easy. I never thought that I would do anything else because one was drawing all the time. I, I used to even. I've got sketchbooks now that I've kept um, where I would be at a party and be drawing portraits of people so um i think i didn't really question about going to art school um and i must say i don't know if it was um being the third daughter but it it, or just our family but i didn't really one always knew that one would have to make one's own way Hmm. um but i didn't really think ahead a lot about what i wanted to do i just took the fact that I would go to art school and then see what happened. And you went, I mean, you, you ended up at Goldsmiths. Did you go anywhere before that, any sort of No, because the pre-dip uh, ah. at that time was at Goldsmiths. Of course, yes. yes. And it was fantastic. And you did, and you did fine art, you did a fine yes. art degree, and you yes. graduated with that. So um, on leaving Goldsmiths, mm. or at least during the time you were there, how did the, what were, mm. what were you thinking? I mean, what, what did you just... Uh, think that well at the end of it something will happen or did you have a plan or did a plan present itself no I had to think what shall I do and I knew I wouldn't um wasn't cut out for teaching and I wasn't going to be a painter I was always much more um I was good at drawing and I loved the printmaking and things like that and it's obvious now that one was leaning towards design rather than fine art really Mm. um so I just um worked at home i i thought i'll try fabric designs and take those around 
Um, so this is working from home? Yes, I just... kitchen table, probably, yes, or something Yes, or my like bedroom that. table, bedroom where table, I used yeah. to do my homework. Yeah. Um, yes, just, um, I, I did that, and I went for the odd job, like... Um, a makeup artist at the BBC, which I failed the interview miserably <laughs> because I wasn't the sort of chatty sort, and um, or whatever you needed to be. Um, but so it was this sort of thing where I, I suppose deep down there was always this urge to do it myself, and yeah. then, oh, then I helped my sister who w- was teaching, but she also. Um, printed um silk scarves and and i took over printing her scarves for her and the process of uh, dyeing and washing those and while she went out to teach so i did that for a while and then i thought you know i must make something to take to the shops and sell you know simple as that and that sort of started to lead on to accessories yes i made um papier-mâché beads yeah. and painted them and mixed them with others and made um, what we called chokers at the time, choker mm-hmm. necklaces and bracelets yeah. and got my first big order from Miss Selfridge. And um, and then I knitted berries, uh, little tops, anything I could make myself. Yeah. But um, after a while, I thought this this is very sort of just this will do for this six months and then the next six months, I want to do something more permanent. And, um, and that's where it coincided with sort of, um, finding this lovely shirt. Ah, yes. At the the Eureka shirt. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about that shirt because I'm fascinated mm, to know exactly what it was like. Well, I think... Because it's obviously very important. Yes, although I think, um, it was just a beautiful sort of, uh, a beautifully made shirt, very fine stitches, very... fine cloth and um, sort of hairline stripes. I remember it was a brown stripe. Um, but I think together with the shirt, it was finding a V-neck slipover and a pair of cotton trousers at this jumble sale. And I put them together and um, we put them on my boyfriend and, and he thought, this is a lovely outfit. And um, But anyway, that was, that was the fun of jumble sailing and everything. Yeah. But um, I thought I'd like to make shirts. I, I, I can't, you know. But as you've described that, putting together those three elements, it, it sounds very much to me the genesis of, of, of actually much of what followed because there is a kind of thread yes. um, that runs through your work. And also, I think, the, the business of um, loving to go to the jumbles and finding things that were old at that time um you know little victorian vases or um crocodile handbags or this would have been let's just i just this would have been either the early 70s or the late 60s late 60s late 60s okay well i'm just trying because uh related to to something else because i think i seem to remember at that time um there was quite an interesting if we move over to another area, which is, if you like, uh, film costume design. I seem to remember a lot of Ken Russell films, mm-hmm. and I think Shirley Russell, uh, I think that mm. was his wife mm. at the time, was was a costume designer. Mm. And many of the uh, productions that Ken Russell directed, particularly those for television, uh, seem to have a fantastic attention t- to period costume, mm. uh, uh, better than, than I'd seen before, and that they seem to be very authentic, and that there seem to be 
a kind of revival, rediscovery of 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 that lovely quality that was, you know, the reason I asked you about the fifties is that, you know, I, I I too was brought up in the fifties, and my memory of the fifties is minimal color, natural colors, lots of kind of tweed and uh, um, flannel, and you, you know, it, it, it sort of it went with the palette of the period, and that's very appealing. It's got an appealing quality to it, you know, when when you contrast it with what you can have now. You can have every, any colour in the mm. whole world, so it's something rather restrained. But anyway, going back to your your that period mm. for you, just tell me about how... I think um, it was sort of finding um, beauty in something that was well-made. Mm. That That's what... You know, that's why one found old things. It seemed to contrast with sort of new things. Um, but also, I th- whether it's just an intuitive sort of attraction to something um, that has an intrinsic quality, because, again, my mother would say, you know, I'm, you can have much better quality if I make your clothes. Um, and, and she talked about these lovely um, Braemar cardigans. That, and I remember going up to town, you know, to London to um, be bought... A, a twin set or something, and um, and then my grandfather, her father, um, had lovely antique chess and things in his house, and because I think his brother or sister or something was involved with antiques, and so I think there's a certain even even the um, you know mum was rather proud of her parquet flooring. Oh yes. um, you know you couldn't wear your stilettos on that, so you had to be careful and. This thing about um, quality, yeah. Because I th- think also, um, I mean, in the sixties, there was a tremendous sort of turnaround in fashion, but it was quite throwaway, and, and it, it didn't matter so much about the quality. It was the impact, wasn't yeah. it? The that um, sort of revolution and and change from the dreary Absolutely. sort of yes. middle aged teenager in yeah. the fifties, yes. Um, but I came a decade after that, didn't I? Yes, that's right. Um, so you, so having been inspired by this beautifully made shirt with all its resonance of mm-hmm. the past and so forth, you you decided that you would. That's what you do. You make your own shirts. You mm-hmm. make your own shirts and uh, to, to, to and concentrate on the quality of the making mm-hmm. and and to see how that would happen. So what happened then? You, you started making these yourself or with a, a, a small group of, of um, um, machinists that would put them together for you? Well, I'm actually not very sure whether I'd already started um, making my own um, shirts and blouses for women and taking them around at this point. I think I was doing that. The thing is... Um, I always needed to be in control of the make of it. And um, even with the um, the beads, I eventually had to sort of um, organise outworkers to make those. So um, when it came to sort of the shirt, that was a case of sort of getting um, a pattern cutter and, you know, things. But at the beginning, I did actually um, get the patterns myself, adapt them, I used to do small lays and wrap um, elastoplast around my fingers because the scissors hurt to yes, cut through so many yes, layers. Yes. And then I 
of course, found that I could buy a cutter. And um, <laughs> so it, it really was sort of, you know. So um, is it really uh, very much a tiny operation? Tiny. And, and, and then you, when you got some examples, you hawked them around yourself? How yes, that, yes, or, took them to, to the various shops. outlets. Like, um, Joseph, Joseph and, Browns. And, and Browns and um, Paul Smith. And well, Ralph Browns, Lauren also, I, uh, to correct me if I'm wrong, I seem to remember yes. that was... Um, well, actually, in the archive I found, um, we were in there yesterday, and um, there's a shirt that um, uh, has got a Browns label in because they actually... Um, didn't want my label. They had to. They insisted on theirs because oh, you know I wasn't. And at that time, you, I think your label was a sort of signature, wasn't it? It was a. Yes. It was In fact, at loopy, that time, it was. It it, it 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 wasn't. It was actually a printed label because oh, okay. you know to begin with, yeah. how could I yeah, even know about working yeah. labels and so on? But obviously, you found you found uh, you found this niche market, and the shirts began to uh, become very. Desirable. Yes, it it coincided with um, American shopkeepers coming over looking for um, sort of traditional English things, and uh, obviously they liked this sort of slightly fresh approach to the English tradition. Because although I loved the um, quality of the cloth, I didn't like smart German street businessmen's shirts you know mm. i liked casual um soft crumpled shirts yeah so that, that yes. i mean that um obviously started to to get your name banded around even though as you said browns were reluctant to use your own name but uh, presumably uh, gradually that yes changed. That, that changed and um i think uh, um joseph was one of the first that really liked the shirts oh for women i'm jumping here yeah. because i I think I started with shirts for women, didn't find much of a market for that, and it was the men's shirts that then really took hold. Yeah. And that's where I really was able to start building a workroom of skilled machinists. Yeah. And I learned an awful lot from this really um, quite an elderly machinist. And that was great fun for me, learning about it and building the workroom. And then, I mean, after that... Um, you know, blossoming. Uh, you you went on to open your your first um, menswear shop in uh, on South Morton Street. Yes, that was a franchise with Joseph. With Joseph. Yes, he. Yeah. I used to sell um, the men's clothes to him: um, shirts, then a jacket, then trousers. And he said, "When you've made a complete men's outfit, I'll open a shop for you." And he did. That's true. And uh, I was working with my husband then, and we. Um, took care of all the graphics and the interior of the shop and Joseph um, just put the money up and we were a very happy marriage. <laughs> That's very good. Yeah. And then a little later in, in, in 1980, you, you, you branched out into women's wear more, more, more fully. I mean, you said that you know early on you, you started with women's shirts, but obviously then yes. the male side dominated. Well, you see, women started to come in and buy the men's um, jackets and trousers yeah. because um, it was the Annie Hall days. And, of course, um, yeah. It's, it's film again. Interesting mm. that, that... Well, that, films and fashion they, always they seem really to connect, don't they? They do, yeah. Mm. Um, uh, so 1980 must have really uh, been a, g- a good period you were... That was really probably the period where one was um, 
after the first decade sort of thing was yeah. really successful so-called you know as yeah. um press and um i think brown's joseph and we were the sort of shops to go to then yeah. i think yeah um, and then you 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 were among the first of the british designers to 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 find success in japan and uh, i mm. think i i was checking just yesterday and i noticed that you have a over 30 outlets whether they're mm. complete shops or within shops um yes. I, I'm, I'm unsure including a lifestyle shop which i was interested mm. to see that's quite interesting well there are i mean it's, it's interesting in that part of that is very evident here in the mm. shop but this seemed to be much more uh, sort of established with with more products and so is that something that you you get very involved with the selection of all of the Yes, I'm um, going to that lifestyle shop. I mean, the the Japanese licensee has um, been tremendous for us, but um, it's it's taken an awful lot of sort of communication and control and um, understanding from the chap who set it up, Sam Sagure. I mean, he's like a friend, and um, without his sort of patience. Um, I don't know, but he's been very clever, and um, he grew the... Uh, business uh, very carefully. He he got many sort of requests to open lots of places, but he didn't. He grew it slowly and kept the quality. And we've got this very good reputation for quality um, in Japan. And we've got several, we've got about three um, fairly large lifestyle shops. And then over 40 to 50 oh, outlets much as that. Wow. and um they are mostly concessions with in stores yes. um quite big concessions very good some of them very successful um and um so is that i mean clearly japan uh is a very successful area for i can understand that because i i can i can see uh, the japanese being very attracted to to uh, to your clothes um, as they always have been to, you know, a certain classicism, if you know what mm. I mean. There, there, there's something about the certain niche of the Japanese that seem to love, you know, they'll go to, I mean, years ago, they were, I think Burberry's had an outlet in uh, Hanover Square that made small-size raincoats, you know, because such was the yes. turnover of, of, of those mm. kind of traditional things. So I, 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 it seems to fit. But is that your biggest market, Japan? Would you? Oh yes, without doubt. Yes. Because from what I understand, you're you, you know you're quite a media person there. I mean, they they mm. you know they which I mean, having only met you sort of uh, really once before, um, uh, I, I think the image uh, one would have an image of a of a fashion designer or whatever you like to term yourself as being someone very kind of gushing and outgoing. But you're, in fact, thinking about it, the 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 sort of image of your of the interior of your shop and the exterior is very much it seems to me a reflection of you it's kind of discreet uh, has a, a quiet quality and and really the work speaks for itself mm. it seems to me so how do you find it in Japan if if you've got a lot of people wanting to mm. chat to you and uh, mm. and so forth well um, I hated it one time when I went and um, I just got off the long haul flight and someone came up and said, are you Margaret? Oh. And uh, you're feeling really, yeah. Um, no, I don't like um, being recognised at all. We we keep much more control now on the PR. 
Um, it's much more meaningful now to, you know, relevant um, product or timings of various things. I had faith in Sam running the business. Mm. Um, and um, I re- realised without them slightly sort of commercialising um, what I do here, I wouldn't have been able to carry on doing exactly what I wanted to do here. Yeah. Um, and one of the reasons I think, you know, you're right in saying that it, the shop does reflect oneself is that it was a conscious decision really, um, around 19, well, towards the end of the nineties. Um, from, from the beginning of the nineties, we, um, opened several little shops and the business became much more, um, stable being run by um, Richard, um, and the Japanese took over the company then, actually. Um, so everything was much more stable and well-organised, but it was becoming a little bit um, retail-led. Yes. And I was... It was losing its sort of creative spark, as far as I was concerned. At the same time, on the street, there were... Uh, uh, you know, Bond Street changed with all these enormous American companies coming in. There was tremendous sort of marketing power, mm. which we could never have. Yeah. And I thought the success for me has always been to, you know, do something personally. It's a personal statement, really. Um, and so... Um, coming here, finding this lovely space was a great way to sort of bring everybody together, um, have almost the Margaret Howe workshop, if you like. And um, at that time, the company had got to a certain size where I needed um, design assistants to work on the collections. And so therefore delegating design of the clothing to a certain extent. And, I wanted to put it in my own ambience, if you like, and I was sort of um, collecting bits of design that I liked or was interested in, and I thought, well, let's feed that in mm. to the shop. Which and, is, in, uh, in, in, I think with the furniture. Know, the, there, there are other uh, fashion designers that have done that, but none of them, in my view, uh, have done it uh, with with the kind of attention to detail and clear passion that you have. I think that they've decided that, you know, uh, uh, lifestyle or home section mm. they would love and they just have someone buy a whole lot mm. of stuff. Whereas I think your pieces, you know, on the occasions that I've been to the store over the years, it's always a pleasure because you, you, you come in, you know, to, to look through the clothes and you're struck by either posters or pieces of typography that you've got framed and then pieces of classic 20th century furniture or indeed new pieces you know i bought one of um, matthew hilton's table lamps mm. from here they all feed back into the mm. very period that i think that mm. you very much love you know this kind mm. of good solid practical british 20th century design that actually you can mix and match with modern pieces mm. and it all fits it kind of is timeless and mm. that seems to me to also reflect in your in your own work mm. you know it, 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 it's it's all it's all come together and they all feed off one another um 
so looking at your you know outside today you've got the um pieces that you've uh, i'm talking now about the furnishing pieces pieces that you've helped uh develop or or, or if you like um reintroduce mm. you've encouraged companies to you know angle toys and Ernest Race and yes. Urkel to, you know, to actually delve into their archives and say, mm. you know, okay, now I can't believe for one moment that this is a highly profitable area for you no. at all, because, you know, knowing that that world, mm. the world mm. of, of furniture, it's such a cutthroat, mm. high volume business that, you know, it's amazing that people can survive. But so I see it, 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 it seems to set off the the atmosphere mm. of the shop and it sort of says well this is me this is what you know it's not just about the clothes that you wear it's about the life that you lead and the things you put into the spaces that you live in well also um it's like when you you suddenly well it it, it is always sort of a sudden thing when you i went to um a little shop in Shoreditch called Undercurrents, and they had um, a round coffee table, Urkel, and a little chair. And you suddenly see it afresh. Yeah. And um, it, it was so simple and elegant, really. And um, and I used to drive past the um, second-hand shop on the way to Battersea. That's where we used to have the studio. And um, there was always, you know, something. And I started to collect the Urkel, and thought that would be brilliant because it's such a British um, institution, Very and so. um, and you want to show it to other people. I mean, of course, you know, a few other people see it as well. But um, our customers, they, no end came in and said, "But you know, we had things like that when I was growing up." And yeah, you know, it does open. It does. I thought, and it it was also because America, Scandinavia was getting a lot of publicity. Um, about their design, and so they should. But we also have some good de- designers, and um, I thought, well, my clothes are very sort of always termed very British, so let's concentrate on British designers, product designers that might have been a bit overlooked. Hmm. And um, so, you know, the things one was finding now were pieces of stainless steel, Robert Welsh in yes, charity shops yes, and things yes, like that. Yes. Um, and the beautiful thing. So, um, and no, that's it, really is, is this very much then reflected in your own home? I mean, you, you've, have you filled it with an eclectic of, mix yes. of twentieth-century British uh, bits and pieces? So, you, yes. is, this is just an overspill into your. You're just bringing your life into your into your workspace as well. It is really yeah. in a way, but it, it. But here, one's trying to do it with a purpose, and. Um, you know, to put on the little exhibitions and, and then with Urkel it led on to actually reproducing some pieces with them, which was nice. Yeah. Um, and uh, then there is, um, you know, Joe Barber who helps me here on that side of things, sourcing, and we source new product, but in the same sort of way. We try and find people who are... Um, almost sort of craftsman, but making something that is modern and yeah. practical, and yeah. rather than just sort of pretty pots or yes, I, I didn't want meaningless home yeah. product. I wanted something that was very well designed and useful. Well, I think you know, going back to the um, 
you know, the, the, the wartime period and the utility furniture. It was all very practical and you know, functional. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of it uh, was also attractive too. But it lasts forever. Mm-hmm. You can, you know, go to anyone's, I bet you can go to anyone's house in, in, uh, in, in this country and you'll find some mm-hmm. that, that characteristic little mm-hmm. sign stamped on the back still being working out. The, the other thing that I uh, noticed, you, 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 been involved in a kind of a reassessment of span housing, which mm. is something you're interested in. And I remember myself many, many years ago, a very good documentary. There was a terrific architectural writer and journalist called Ian Nairn, who I'm sure oh, you yes. know. Mm. And he made a program about span housing. Oh, he used to drive he? around his little Morris Yes, minor. they were great programs. Always used Fantastic to watch them. Programs. Mm. He wore a kind of um, mm. Macintosh and little mm. hat, but uh, it was very eloquent and terrific. And I remember him, uh, you know, this is uh, a long time ago, talking about span houses mm. and the rationale and so forth. And um, it kind of leads me on to, uh, for me, the kind of, if you like, the tragedy of um, of domestic architecture in this country. I mean, I was a couple of weeks ago in, in Amsterdam, and I went over to along the riverside where there's n- you know nothing but contemporary architecture. Um, absolutely wonderful. Mm. I mean, re- they really know how to use light, space, um, and create an intimacy without you know, as we seem to do, um, reverting to a kind of some kind of nostalgic. Palmbury mm. sort of situation. And uh, I think the span houses were uh, really one of the last attempts at trying to use you know, good architecture for domestic use and thinking about the people that were going to live in those houses and not just, you know, packing them in and making as much money per unit, as they call them, as possible. Mm. It's, and I think you sponsored an exhibition or you... Mm. We, we, we did... Um, be- because, um, well, we support open house. Yes, um, the, the yearly architectural. Yes, because when, when you're a company, events. you're always sort of being asked to uh, donate to charity. And we thought, well, let's do it for some... I mean, I, I remember when it started having the most terrific, exciting weekend, um, visiting all these places. And um, I think it's a great thing, um, open house. Mm. Um so we try and put on um, an event um, at the beginning of that weekend, um, and but with Span it became, you know, so it, it just um, extended into a little exhibition mm. um, using some of the photographs from the RIBA archive yes. and things. Yeah. And then, of course, they they put on um, a lovely exhibition um, of Span. They did, mm. yes, yes. Um, but I, I was surrounded by the Span Estates in Blackheath. And, um, again, when I first lived there, used to walk past and I wouldn't have liked to have lived in them, you know. Um, then the years go by and you suddenly assess them again and they, they're really very nicely designed. It's actually quite interesting, that reassessment, because, you know, a lot of, just as buildings are about to be pulled down, Yes. They're rediscovered by a whole new generation, that seems mm. to be. So many of the uh, 60s uh, office buildings that, you know, were not getting a, you know, a look in at all, people just felt they were just put up, have, you know, certainly been completely reassessed in, in um, 
the, their quality and the visual aspect and so mm. forth and uh, are kind of beloved by much younger people uh, uh, and and that is um, the same with in so many areas mm. I mean certainly in in in, in furniture interior styling mm. I mean interior styling you know I think when you get to a certain age and you've been there and you see these things being regurgitated and reassessed and so forth, I always find that very interesting, mm. the way that there's this continual handing on of something from the past, but adding a bit to it and then reinventing it. And, and then it goes, and I wondered whether there has ever been anything truly original in terms of design. I mean, I think one could think of the Bauhaus, which is a kind of a moment, mm. which is, uh, you know, total stripping back, you know, functionality and form and, you know, lack of any decoration as being, you know, a, a major in, in inspiration to many, many people. Um, but it's quite difficult now, you know, when you look at, you know, the uh, the, the the impact that 60s, um, particularly large-scale architecture is kind of having again on, I think of Zaya Hadid and her work, and it, it's very much uh, reminiscent of the Brazilian, the famous Brazilian architect whose name escapes me at the moment. Um, uh, in you know, I look at them and I see complete sort of parallels. It's quite interesting mm. the way that. Anyway, we, we, I digress. Well, you, I, I just think it's <laughs> madness that um, we can't uh, sort of build more practical simple houses mm. that could be really aesthetically pleasing mm. but it's changing the public's attitude to that isn't it i saw a program uh fairly recently where they took a group of british people who had a very fixed views on what a house should be like across the holland to the very place that i went to to look at at these and th their first reaction was oh they all look a bit sort of officey and um, mm. uh, but the moment they were inside mm. and they saw how they used space mm. and light mm. they changed mm. their tune the alternative was uh, Poundbury in Dorset which is where Prince Charles mm. has created this very large now because I live not very far away um, sort of new town but it's it's built on a organic village-like structure with with um, little architectural, mm. you know, town halls and towers and mm. clocks and God knows what else. But Pillars and architecture. It's, it's, but it, what, what's so depressing is that, one, every time they build a house itself, instantly, and mm. two, when you look at the detailing, it's all wrong. I mean, all the windows are too mm. high because of regulation, all that sort mm. of stuff, all the glazing bars are too mm. thick because they've got to be double... And I think, well, if you're going to do that, if you really are going to do that, do it absolutely perfectly with great integrity. You know, recreate something that's absolutely as it was in the Georgian period, not a half-hearted mm. attempt. But it doesn't seem to affect the public. They love it. I think there's, there is a great nostalgia within the British people. Uh, you know, there is a sort of... Uh, um, almost a paint-by-numbers view of what interior should look like. Yes, and yet, you know, with all the, the, the young couples that moved into the span houses, they, they just fell in love with them because they worked. Yes. You know, the light does affect yeah. you. The, um, um, I, there does have to be a nice sort of human, um, element to architecture, doesn't yes. it? Domestic architecture. Absolutely. Especially. Yeah. 
Um, well, I think it should be the same with officers, personally. Yes. I think if, if it all gets lost, you know, they yes. forget the people, think about the statement, yes. Yes. Um, which is very sad. Um, but, um, I mean, there, the beauty was all the landscape. It was all the landscaping. I mean, the whole thing was considered as, um, you know, Inside and outside. Like a small village, but in the, in the town. I mean, it was yeah. perfect. Yeah. Um, and different levels. And yes. Yes. It's such a pity that... Sort of we're, we're modular, but, but enough individuality somehow. Yeah. Um, and, and also, it's happened on um, the Greenwich Peninsula, I find, where um, you get these ghastly sort of high-rise, well, flats that are all crudely painted on the outside and lots of fussiness and yet the yacht club has been designed with lovely horizontal wood and glass and very simple and perfect for the environment mm. well like that presumably like the the, the rowing club at chipperfield yeah. uh, designed at the other end of the thames which is uh, just simple yeah. wood it's 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 sad that um, that it's it's not i know that i think cave are trying to uh, uh, created greater awareness of um, mm. of domestic architecture, modern domestic architecture. It'll be very interesting to see whether they can uh, achieve uh, something over the over the coming it, years. It is a it is a difficult thing to change people's attitude to. Yes, it is. Um, well, I'm going to sort of round off now. But um, last year, 2007, was a really good year for you because you were made a CBE at the beginning. In the New Year's Honours list, and then later you became a royal designer towards the end of the year. So it rounded off a very nice, uh, a nice uh, time for you. So I mean, all that hard work, uh, going right back to when you found that little shirt, uh, mm. seems to have um, seems to have paid off. And um, uh, I wanted to end really by just asking you, because no doubt there will be some young, uh, budding. Uh, designers, fashion designers, or anyone that, will, that wants to get into the creative world, either about to go to college or at, or at college, I wonder whether you have any kind of words of wisdom that you'd like to pass on to them. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think um, if you've got a strong um, drive to do something, uh, you, you've got you, um, money isn't the drive. Um, you've got to want to do it wholeheartedly and um, stick at it because it's very hard, lots of tears. Um, I think it's just a staying power. It's, it's just keeping up that um, enthusiasm for what you do. Hmm. Well, Margaret Hell, thank you very much. Thank you.